Well, hey, before we get into scripture this morning, just a little update for our church family to remind you to be praying. Uh, This week, I will be meeting with Fruit Group, who is the recruiting firm that is helping us locate uh, a new uh, worship pastor. And so I just say that to you guys to remind you to be praying that the Holy Spirit would give us discernment, that he would lead us and guide us um, and make his will known, make his will clear, who, what, where, when, how, all of that. And uh, that there would be unity amongst our leadership, uh, amongst our team, and that God would show us what his plan is and that he would be glorified in the way that he provides for our church family and uh, the unity that he gives our church family as we continue to move forward. Would you commit to be praying this week and forward as we uh, continue to navigate that? Amen. Three people are going to pray this week. Cool. (laughs) Cool, cool. Would you guys commit to pray for that this week? Amen. That's better. Thank you. All right. Hey, go ahead and turn uh, to the book of Philippians this morning. We're going to hop around there in one of my favorite books. Um, If you're new to our church, if you're visiting, we're on the tail end of something that we have called the year of the Bible, which is taking the year of 2022 to go Genesis to Revelation, uh, kind of hopping around on the primary narrative, the meta-narrative, so to speak, of Scripture. We're following the way that the Bible is one story about Jesus. It's not a bunch of random, disconnected, isolated stories, but it is one story from creation to consummation, all of it being about Jesus Christ. And in our reading plan that we have that is steering uh, what we teach on the weekends, this last week we read the book of Philippians, one of my absolute favorite books, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And then we also read the first six chapters of Hebrews. I'm going to touch on Hebrews next week. That's right. We're going to try and teach the entire book of Hebrews next week. Might just read the whole thing and just leave because it's a sermon in and of itself, but probably not. This week, we're going to focus more in on the book of Philippians. Now, a little story, a little uh, perspective, if you will. In 2013, the fall of 2013, remember I moved here in November of 2012, The fall of 13 was a very, very significant season in my life where something happened that bled into every area of my life. And that was, I decided I wanted to spend the rest of my life with Katie, my wife of now eight years. We met on April 19th of 2013. And then on August 15th of that same year in 2013, we officially became boyfriend and girlfriend. (laughs) I hate those titles. I wish there were better titles. Makes you feel like you're in high school. I guess adults would say we were dating. And then we, the Lord did a quick work in our relationship where on uh, Christmas Eve of the same year, 2013, we got engaged. And uh, I remember there was a night where we were at McDonald's on South Business in South Sheboygan uh, at midnight just hanging out, getting to know each other, talking and learning each other's favorite everything, right? And, um, you know, I was 28 at the time, and I remember talking to her and going, (laughs) we hadn't been dating very long. Uh, And I remember sitting there talking to her saying, okay, here's the deal. I don't want to scare you off, but I'm just going to lay this out there. I said, uh, I've dated, I've had girlfriends, and I'm not really just interested. I don't want to date for the sake of dating. I don't want to just have a girlfriend. If I'm dating someone, 
you, (laughs) it's because I'm considering marriage. It's because I'm trying to find out if if this could work for the rest of our lives. And so I just want to put it out there because I want you to understand the perspective from which I'm approaching this relationship because it determines the way that we do this. And I'm not bored. (laughs) I'm not just bored trying to find a girlfriend. I'm trying to find out if you are the one that I want to marry. It's like, sorry if that scares you, hope not, but if it does, I just got to put it out there. And she across the table to me said, I feel the exact same way. I was like, okay. That was a little bit of a scary conversation, but uh, a few months later, it didn't take me long, didn't take her long. In fact, she would say the Lord told her before we even talked one time that she was going to marry me. Uh, And so... We ended up now, we've been married eight years, but what happened was I met this girl that I became more and more captivated by. I saw more and more beauty in, and I enjoyed her company more and more, and I fell in love with her to the extent that my goal was to do what was necessary to keep her. Back then, I was a part-time pastor. Here at the church, I moved here on a a part-time basis, And so one of the decisions I made back then was I decided to get a second job working part-time at Bemis Manufacturing making toilet seats. Now, it was not to probably your shock because I have some strange affinity for the porcelain throne. No, that's not what motivated me to get that job. It's not because someone was like, hey, uh, you should probably work more. There was no judgment like that, at least that I was aware of. I got that job because I had a goal in mind. In my heart and in my mind, I had a goal of, I want to spend the rest of my life with this girl, and this is gonna help me do that. And if I can get another part-time job, making some more money, help pad my finances a little bit, also jewelry's a little expensive, so uh, I'm gonna make this decision because of the goal that I had in my mind, which was spend the rest of my life with Katie. And that motivated me to get that other job, to make more money, to get in better position for a hopeful future with her. You know what else happened? I had a group of friends. I had the boys that I would hang out with. And it was interesting. The further that I went into this relationship with Katie, the less I hung out with the boys. And to their chagrin, they weren't too happy about how I was hanging out with them less, spending less time with them. And it's not that they were less important or unimportant. It's just that she became more important. See, I had a goal in my mind, something I was looking forward to, hopefully spending the rest of my life with her, which made some other things that were valuable to me less important because she rose in importance. I had a goal spend the rest of my life with Katie. And that motivated me, unfortunately, to have less bro time. I don't know how many of you guys remember the winter of 2013. Remember, I moved here from Texas in 2012. The winter of 2013 was the coldest winter in Wisconsin in 30 years. And I moved here with a stupid Ford Mustang that had no heat for two years. And I remember that year especially being very miserably cold in my car. And it's when we were dating and then engaged. 
And we spent a lot of time together in my car with no heat in the coldest winter in 30 years in Wisconsin. Guys, we were in my car wearing both of our winter coats, our gloves, our scarves. I'm not even a scarf guy. That's why you've never seen me wear one. But that year I was a scarf guy. Wearing coats, gloves, scarves, hats. We kept like four blankets in my car because we would get in the car and just pile them on because it was that cold. Her parents live in Elkhart Lake. And so we had a 20 minute drive all the time. And you know, nobody told me, you know, Stephen, endure that. Make sure you just push through it. No, I had a goal in mind. Spend the rest of my life with this girl. And that gave me the endurance, the perseverance to be willing and able to endure conditions like that that were not pleasurable, that were not comfortable, that were not just delightful because even though the circumstances were brutal, we were together. And it served the purpose of the goal that I had in mind, getting to know her and hopefully spending the rest of my life with her. One more final point to this story. Saved up thousands of dollars to buy a tiny piece of metal and stone. Drove to Appleton with one of my good friends and that's right, I went to Jared. <laughs> Apparently that makes me an awesome fiance if the commercials are telling the truth. Was it because Katie was a gold digger and she had made her expectations known? No. It was because I saw value in her that I wanted to communicate back to her. And so something that was very, very costly to me, I didn't consider the cost because of the hopes of what I was gaining. Again, I had a goal in my mind to spend the rest of my life with her because I had fallen in love with her and wanted to be with her and I wanted to show you, show her the value that I had in her. I had that goal to spend the rest of my life with her, a goal that bled into my finances, it bled into my job, it bled into my friendships, my schedule, my vision of my life, my future, my priorities. I said no to things because I wanted to spend my life with her. I said yes to things because I spent my life with her. As I shared about that conversation at McDonald's, it guided our conversations. It guided the way that we interacted with each other. It guided our decisions even before we were married. And guess what? Still to this day, I have the same goal. My goal hasn't changed. It's not like the goal was the wedding day. Because if it was, that's done. And then I can just live however but the goal was to be with her for the rest of my life. Essentially, to choose to commit to each other for the rest of our lives. And because of that, with the goal having not changed, I still need to, not only need to, but want to date her and pursue her and serve her and love her and take care of her and provide for her and do everything that I can to the ends of that same goal. There was something ahead of me that I was hoping for that left no area of my life untouched. There was something ahead of me that was of such great value and worth to me that it kept me focused when lesser things wanted my time or my money. There was something ahead of me that gave me strength to endure hardship because of the reward I had before me, that reward being life with Katie. 
And to varying degrees, there was also the fact that I was already somewhat to an extent enjoying the reward of her presence. We were already together. We were already getting to know each other. There was always, there's already the, the joy, the elation, the fascination of all the getting to know each other. I was already enjoying being with her, yet there was a different manner in which I was looking forward to the future with her. Okay, Stephen, why are we talking all this long about all this? Well, if you're like me, I know you, there have been a few times in your life, maybe many times, in your Christian walk where you have felt spent or tired or discouraged by hardship or suffering, things that you're seeing or maybe even feeling the great cost of following Jesus. And maybe others are trying to paint a picture for you of something better or something more enjoyable or something more immediately rewarding. Philippians is a letter that encapsulates all the sentiments that I just expressed about finding a treasure worth pursuing, but on an exponentially greater scale. As worthy of a treasure as my wife is, she cannot compare to the glories of Jesus Christ. And she would not go, hey, wait a minute, because she knows and she agrees. In fact, no one can, no thing can, no one or no thing ever will be able to compare to the glories of Jesus Christ. As Spencer taught us last week in Colossians, that he is preeminent. He is supreme. And he is more valuable than anything we could ever long for or want or hope for or desire. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us that it's like finding treasure in a field. And that for joy over what we found, we go and sell everything we have just to have that treasure. He's saying finding Jesus Christ is like that. It's not learning how to obey so that we could hopefully get to heaven one day. It is recognizing that there is someone, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our pursuit above anything and everything else to the extent that it bleeds into every other area of our life. Today we're going to see from Philippians that an eternal perspective of the glory of Jesus Christ gives us the endurance we need, the patience we need, the joy that we need, the hope that we need, the humility we need, the priorities we need, the drive we need, the desires we need, the discernment we need. Everything we need in this life by the power of the Holy Spirit is anchored on that goal. Whereas I had a goal that drove every or, or, or affected every area of my life of spending the rest of my life with Katie, when the ultimate goal of your life is eternity with Christ, it doesn't only bleed into every area and touch it a little bit. It actually overrules and steers and guides and guards every single area of your life. Philippians from start to finish is going to give us a joyful vision, a joyful vision of life in light of eternity. I had you turn to Philippians chapter one earlier. We're gonna start in verse 12 today. Paul writing to the church in Philippi says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known uh, throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So in, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, you know, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I, and, and yes, and I will rejoice. We find Paul writing this letter of joy. This letter has often been called the epistle of joy because if you read Philippians 1 through 4, it's a very brief letter, a short letter compared to some others. That as you read through this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, you see joy and rejoice throughout this book. And I just want to remind you or inform you that this letter that talks about joy and rejoicing so much, he wrote while he was imprisoned. This letter where he's saying rejoice. How is it that Paul could say, yeah, you know what, guys, I'm in prison, but you know what? The whole palace guard is hearing about Jesus. And so in that, <laughs> I rejoice. Like if we were in jail today, if we were imprisoned, what would we, we would probably be saying, woe is me. Oh, it's so rough in here. Oh, I can't stand this. Oh, I hate this. Oh, I wish I could get out. Oh, I wish I had freedom. And Paul, knowing that he was arrested for the name of Jesus Christ, goes, hey, yeah, you know what? Hey, guess what, guys? It's actually worked out for the best because now, all these guards, they're hearing about Jesus. So, cool. And you know what else? Actually, I, I, there's other people who are, who are preaching about Jesus Christ with wrong motives. They have selfish ambition and they, they have wrong reasons that they're telling people about Jesus Christ. And some of them are doing it to try and spite me. There's this dumb rivalry that they have between me. But, but you know what? <laughs> Christ is being preached, so in that I rejoice. And again, I'll rejoice. He's, he's able to take his eyes off of his circumstances, off of the suffering he's enduring, off of the other bad motives of other people or who are in his life and doing things for wrong motives, and he's able to just step back and go, hey, Jesus is being preached to these guards, and Jesus is being preached over here, so I'm happy. I rejoice in that. See, eternal joy, eternal joy gives you endurance during temporary suffering. When your joy is found in something eternal, the fact that you will be with Jesus Christ forever, the fact that he gives us a taste now in his indwelling Holy Spirit, the same way that I had a, a future hope of being with Katie for the rest of my life, yet I was still, even in the moment, enjoying her presence. That we have a future hope of being with Jesus Christ for eternity, yet he also right now gives us his presence by his Holy Spirit, that in these moments of suffering, where people who don't have that, who don't have him and don't know him, are sitting here going, oh, this is terrible. I want out. This is painful. This is uncomfortable. This is inconvenient. This is undesirable. Paul's going, eh, this sucks, but hey, Jesus, 
Hey, yeah, maybe this, but look, look what God's doing. Man, I'm just going to rejoice in it. When you have an eternal joy, it gives you endurance during temporary suffering. How do you say that? How do you rejoice in prison? Because you have an eternal perspective. You have an eternal goal that makes your immediate circumstances much, much smaller, much, much quieter. And one of my favorite old songs that many of you might know, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You guys know that song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I had Katie with me in that car when we're going. <laughs> and I could sit there going. Is that funny, Joe? <laughs> or I could go, I'm with Katie. It's all good. We'll get home in a minute. We'll be there soon. Carl and Jackie will have the heater on and we can thaw out. <laughs> Knew that there was something coming, something ahead, and at the same time I had her with me. Paul goes on to say, yeah, those people, they're trying to spite me and make me jealous, but eh, who cares? Christ is being proclaimed. Let's pick up again in chapter one. Let's look at verse 19. He's gonna ramp it up, this eternal perspective. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You know what, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in a way that's worthy of what he's done. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. How do you say madness like this? Where he's saying, yeah, I'm hopeful that Christ is gonna be glorified in me whether I live or die. In fact, you know what, guys? To live is Christ, meaning if I'm alive, it means I'm alive in him, through him, for him, for his purposes and for his glory. If I have breath in my lungs, if I have blood pulsing through my body, I have been given life by God to be doing his work. To live is Christ. To die is gain. In fact, guys, if I'm honest, I would rather that. How can you say that? How can someone with a clear conscience say, man, you know what, guys? I really would rather just die because that means I would get to be with Christ. To live is is Christ. To die is gain. I'm torn between the two, wanting to be here and help you, but really, it's far better for me to just go be with him. (sighs) Yet, Since it's better for you that I stay because that means there's going to be fruit in your lives that you're going to continue to grow in your knowledge of him. You're going to continue to grow in your faith, continue to grow in joy in him. I'm going to stay and I'm going to keep enduring and I'm going to keep enduring this hardship and this suffering and these chains because it's better for you. See, that requires an eternal perspective, both to say, (laughs) be better for me to get out of here. It takes an eternal perspective to say that, and it takes the same exact eternal perspective to take your eyes back off of yourself there in that moment and going, you know what, me being with Christ in eternity is way better than the sufferings of this life, but I need to take myself or my eyes off of myself again and consider eternity again, which means all of you and the eternity that you will have with or without Christ. And because it's better for you, I'm going to set aside what's better for me. See, an eternal perspective causes you to take your eyes off of yourself and put your eyes on Christ and on others. I'm going to say that again. An eternal perspective causes you to take your eyes off of yourself and put your eyes on Christ and then therefore also on others. If you're living for the here and now, trying to have your best life now, you're going to be saying, YOLO, only live once, let's live it up. This is the sentiment throughout throughout the Old Testament scripture of Ecclesiastes where he's saying, man, guys, this life, all of it, Everything is vanity. It's all meaningless. And, and because of that, let, let's eat, drink, and be die or be merry for tomorrow we die. If this is all that there is, then let's just live it up. Let's live for the here and now. Let's eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die and it doesn't even matter. So what? Let's just enjoy it. But that book of, of Ecclesiastes is pointing forward to a greater truth revealed in the New Testament that we don't only live once, that there is a season of life to come, an eternal life. And because of that, we choose not to eat, drink, and be merry and live in a way 
as if this life here and now is all that we have and all that we hope for and it is here and so we may as well treat it like a surplus at work where it's like if we don't spend it, we don't get it back, so let's spend it. No, we are living right now sowing into eternity both in the lives of others and in our own lives. Further, he goes on to say, you know what, I'm gonna stay. It's better for you guys. He's taking his eyes off of himself and on Christ and he's living from an eternal perspective. How is it that Paul could also say, it's been granted? <laughs> this is an interesting term he uses. It has been granted to you. It's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I don't know about you. I've never been thinking about suffering and gone, grant it to me. I've never been thinking about hardship in life and thought, yeah, I, I hope that that gets granted to me. How can you say that? Again, you must once more have an eternal perspective wherein the suffering that we experience here and now in this life is something that we can endure. Why? Because we have an ultimate hope and ultimate glory of being with Christ for eternity, even now as he's given us his spirit as a seal only if you have an eternal perspective like the one we saw in Romans 8 a few weeks ago where Paul said, I do not consider the sufferings of this present world to be compared to the glory that is to come. That's another chapter where, where Paul, writing to the Romans in that case, he says, hey guys, we have an inheritance coming in Christ Jesus provided we suffer with him. And then he goes on to say, but I don't consider the sufferings of this world to be comparable to the glory that is to come. I don't consider the things that I'm having to endure, the pain, the difficulty, the grief, the sorrow, the things that we experience in this fallen world and in this life that God actually uses to refine us, mature, mature us, purge us, mature us, and grow us in him, that those things that are difficult and hard and uncomfortable that he uses for our good and for his glory, I don't consider those things to compare, to hold a candle to what we're going to see that day. I promise you, I guarantee you, that day that you wake up in glory, beholding the face of Jesus Christ, you will forget every moment of the deepest and hardest pain and suffering, which is why Paul would call those things light and momentary affliction. Is it because it wasn't hard? No. Is it because it wasn't long? No. It's because it doesn't hold a candle to what is to come. And there's coming a day in this Advent season where we're considering Jesus Christ taking on flesh and becoming human, how he came into our world, into our suffering, into our brokenness, and also modeled suffering for us that we still to this day have that same heartbeat going, come thou long expected Jesus. Could there be a day, could there be a hope that we could long for where the pain in your life that you feel right now will be no more? Where the suffering you've been experiencing and navigating will be not only in and out, this too shall pass, more's gonna come. No, imagine a day 
Think for a moment where there's no more. No more. How could he say these things? Because he had an eternal perspective. Paul wasn't thinking about his own life, his own welfare, what he wanted, what he was longing for, what he desired. Sure, he considered it. We can see it in his pen. You know, guys, it'd actually be better for me to just go be with Jesus. But it's better for you. Let's pick up in chapter two. We're gonna see another way in which this eternal perspective comes out in Paul's writing. Chapter two and verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How can Paul say, in humility count others more significant than yourselves? In a day, an age, in a culture, in a society that says, look out for number one, take care of yourself, make sure that everything, you got everything you need. Paul, with an eternal perspective, is saying, hey, actually, count others more significant than yourself. Put others before yourself. You can do that if you believe that you're not here in this life and on this planet and this world for yourself. But if you receive the American modern ideology that you're here for yourself, if you allow the voices in the culture to cultivate the perspective of your life and why you're here and how you should therefore live, then you will not be able to be in line, be in tow and in step with God's word where it says, actually, consider others more important than yourself, more significant than yourselves. How could he go on beyond that to say, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus? How do we humble ourselves? It's just by going, come on, be humble. No. How do we humble ourselves, forsaking our own rights, forsaking our own claims to equality? How do we get over our, uh, what we feel we deserve? By looking at Jesus, who, who noticed this did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It says, though he was in the form of God, did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he had equality with God. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all together, God in one, one God in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, yet even in the Godhead. 
of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is an authority structure there where the Son humbles himself, becoming obedient, taking on the form of a servant, and becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. What do we do in our lives when we are called to submit to someone or something, a structure or an individual that we feel is not right or not just, or we feel we don't like. Maybe it is right and we acknowledge it is just, but we don't like it. And our, our flesh tells us, no, you deserve this much or you deserve that. And oh, you're better than this. And oh, they need to treat you. They need to understand what you bring to them. They need to recognize. If there was ever Anyone who had a right to say, excuse me, you want me to put on human flesh? Excuse me, you want me to go down there and be mocked? Excuse me, wait, 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 wait. We're talking about not only death, but the most shameful public spectacle of death that exists in the day of crucifixion on a cross that was reserved for insurrectionists, that was reserved for political um, deviants, for people who were causing upheaval, that this type of death was reserved in a way for those who needed to be made a public spectacle of shame and embarrassment. Jesus, if there was ever a person who could say, <laughs> no, I'm Lord, it was him, but he humbled himself and submitted himself to the Father. Every single one of us have positions, have people in our life that we are to be submitted to. There is no one on planet earth that is not submitted to someone else. And that submission is good and healthy and within God's design. Scripture teaches that we are to be submitted to our government. Yeehaw! Scripture teaches from Colossians last week in Ephesians chapter 5 that wives are to be submitted to their husbands. That's real popular today. We like that one, right? Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We don't like that. We say, wait, 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 what about equality? Yeah. Jesus did not consider equality a thing to be grasped. Listen, godly submission is not an issue of equality. It's an issue of obedience to God's design. Children submit to their parents. We submit to bosses and leaders and authorities in our lives. And anytime that you're wrestling with this concept, just go to Philippians chapter two and look at the preeminent Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, who had equality with God. And if you think, oh, my equality here is being threatened, just look at Jesus who had equality with the Father and yet submitted to his authority and leadership to the point of death on a cross. And notice how the things that Jesus has required of us, he has modeled for us already and to extremes that we will probably never feel. We're not going to a cross, right? We take up our cross daily, yet we are not literally going to a cross. And so everything that we feel like, oh God, why would you, oh, I don't like this and I feel like it should be different, we need to submit our thoughts to God's way. Stephen, that's outdated, old-fashioned. Oh, listen, it, it, scripture, it, at, at some point you have to ask where your authority is. And at Word of Grace, we plant our flag on the Word of God. 
And ultimately, all of this comes about with us not wanting to be obedient to God's design, God's order, and refusing to corrupt that fallen desire to say, "Uh, no, God, I know a better way than you. Whatever these things are, whomever God has placed an authority over you, look at Jesus and remind yourself that the Lord of all creation, the preeminent, eternally preexistent Christ, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Stephen, that'll cost me. That'll be too hard. That'll give me enemies, and that will make me the bad guy among my peers and coworkers. And next time, those distortions, distortions of equality or pain or discomfort or entitlement or rejection or cost or anything that becomes an argument in your mind against submission to God's word, God's will, and God's ways, set your eyes on Jesus and your hope on eternity. Philippians chapter three, let's turn the page. Verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for those evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And, and just pausing to just there for a second, he's talking about the Judaizers who were saying, yes, Jesus, but also you have to be circumcised. He's saying, no, watch out for those guys. Verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul sitting here going through all of his qualifications, all of everything that made him be able to go, yeah, if we could earn and merit righteousness, I'm the boss. But notice what he says here, verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How can Paul say this stuff? How can he sit here saying, everything in my life that I have built my whole life on? You have to understand, Paul studied under Gamaliel. He was becoming one of the greatest pharisaical voices in his day. He was climbing the corporate ladder, the spiritual ladder of religious elites that day, and he goes through his laundry list. This is requiring 
utmost dedication and loyalty. He's memorized the Old Testament. He's given his entire life to pursuing Pharisaical teaching and becoming a Pharisee and all that he's given his entire life up until the point where he met Jesus. He looks at all of that striving, all of that effort, all of that work, all of that investment, all the energy he's poured into it and he's going, garbage! Compared to knowing Christ. I consider it garbage, dog dung, refuse compared to knowing Christ. I count it all as loss that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that's from the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ that I may know him and be found in him and share in his sufferings. That by any means possible, here's the eternal perspective that's motivating everything he said, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead eternal perspective, looking not in what he was hoping for now, all the acclaim that he had built, the reputation of Saul that was spreading throughout Jerusalem and Judea and all the empire where people knew who Saul of Tarsus was. He had respect. He had rapport. People were like, oh, Saul, wow. He's like, eh, dog dung. Knowing Jesus is all that matters. I used to think that people thinking I was special was what mattered. I used to think me knowing it all was what mattered. I used to think that me having my checklists and my reputation is what mattered. And compared to knowing Jesus Christ, he uses verbiage that would be equivalent of saying dog bleep. And so what that's compared to knowing Jesus Christ. How could he say these things? Because his eyes were on Christ and his hope was in eternity. Let's pick up in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to the mark to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If there was a guy who could say, yeah, I got it figured out. If there was a guy who could say, yeah, I think I've got it. I've attained it, I've accomplished it, I've achieved it. It was probably the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he says, I'm forgetting all that lies behind and I am pressing on towards the goal. And what was the goal? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus once more, an eternal perspective of eyes on Christ and hope in eternity that caused him not to just kick back and rest and, and live his best life now, but to continue to press 
forward that he might attain it, that he might find that eternal hope in Christ, that upward call of Christ Jesus, his Lord. And then watch this, what he says after saying, this is what we need to be doing, forgetting what's behind, pressing on towards that goal. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Okay, 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 okay. How many of you would consider yourself mature in Christ? You feel like, you know what, I've known the Lord for a while. How many of you would think, hey, I, 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 I feel like I'm mature in my faith or maturing in my faith. Paul is saying to all of us who feel that way, if you're mature in Christ, this is the way you're gonna think. That I haven't attained, I haven't achieved. I'm pressing forward towards the goal, towards that upward call of God in Christ. If you're mature in Christ, your eyes are on him, your hope is in eternity. Paul goes on to say, this is the mindset of the mature believer. And then finally, I'm gonna jump ahead to chapter four as we close. Verses 11 through 13, he says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here we go. I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. Once more, context is important. This is where we find Philippians 4.13 is not Paul saying, I can do anything I set my mind to with Jesus. I can bench press my, I can break my own bench press record. I can pass that test. I can pass the bar. I can get that new job. I can do whatever with Jesus helping me do it. He's saying, I've been rich and I've been poor. I have been abounded and I have been abased and I have learned I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. He just said, I have learned the secret of being content. Hello, Christmas season. Right? Black Friday, Cyber Monday, uh, last chance to buy before Christmas sales, all these deals flooding our inboxes, all the flyers coming into our mailboxes, all the commercials painting a picture for you that you'll finally be happy if. And Paul, with his eyes on Christ and his heart's hope in eternity, says, you know what I've learned in whatever state I'm in? Jail, a rich comfort in Lydia's house when she's hosting us. I've learned when things are good and when things are bad, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. Why? Because I've got Christ. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a frequent gospel conversation that Katie and I have in our homes when we are talking about things that we wish or want or long or, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And, oh, if only we, we go, oh, let's be content with what Christ has given us. Amen. He is enough. He is enough. And we live in a society and in a culture that's constantly telling us he's not enough. And we need to be aware of that so that when we see that picture, that graphic, that video, that, that marketing that's telling us, hey, we need this, 
to be happy and fulfilled. Let's go look at Philippians chapter four and go, no, Lord, help me be like Paul to where I could see Jesus in such a way that helps me be content in whatever state I am in. We must take our eyes off ourselves and onto Christ. We must trade our hope in the now for hope in eternity. So how do we respond? What do we do? How do we act in light of these things? I would encourage you to look at your life and ask yourself, what are the things that are robbing you of joy and contentment in Christ? And look at Philippians chapter three and go, garbage. Is there anything in my life that is robbing me of finding joy, hope, fulfillment, contentment in Jesus Christ? What's getting in the way? And like chapter three, go, I count that as loss. Some of us might need to, this December, instead of looking outside at what we feel we need, looking inside at what Christ has given us, given us already in himself and going, I have so many things in my life that are unworthy and now I'm going to start saying no to those things so that I can say yes to more of Jesus Christ. Some of us might need to look in our life and go, man, I, I just need to work on reorienting my mind. I need to put some scriptures. I need to put Philippians 3, 7, and 8 on my mirror in the morning so that as I start my day and I'm brushing my teeth, I'm looking at the fact that all those things I once thought were so important are garbage and rubbish, that I need to have that before my eyes and sinking down into my heart on a daily basis because the world I live in is preaching at me 24-7 otherwise. How do we respond? We look at the truth. We look at Jesus continually, knowing that the more we look at him, the more we look like him. As we look at his humility, he gives us humility. As we look at his sacrifice, he empowers us to sacrifice. As we look at his suffering and the way he endured the cross, it empowers us to endure the suffering we have in this life. We look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12 tells us, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. We similarly long and strive and press forward towards that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I feel like one of my greatest responsibilities as your pastor is to over and over and over and over and over say, guys, don't live for here and now. Be in the moment for that moment. Live today for that day. Make decisions today and tomorrow for that day to come. God, I ask that you would give us an eternal perspective. God, I ask that you would help us, like Paul, to see Jesus as such a value, such a treasure, greater than anything else we could hope for and long for that gives us endurance through suffering, that gives us joy and hardship, that gives us hope to look forward to, that gives us peace and anxiety and in distress and in fear and worry, that gives us comfort in your spirit and in your presence. God, help us have our eyes on Jesus and our hope on eternity recognizing we have your presence with us now, but there is a day we long for. With no more sin, no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. And we say, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Amen.